The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Vani Quinn. This week... What's really interesting is this constant questioning, this idea that there is always a counter-narrative, that we have to constantly douse everything to the point that everything is unknowable. Clara Ferreira Marquez on Putin's propaganda war. Later, we'll speak with Julie Wren on lessons China could learn from a neighbour. First to the markets, though. Lots of Fed speakers this week before the Fed hits its blackout period, all vowing the Fed will conquer inflation. Here is Chair Jay Powell at the Cato Institute Thursday. The longer inflation remains well above target, the greater the concern that the public will start to naturally incorporate higher inflation into its economic decision making. And our job is to make sure that doesn't happen. We're with Bloomberg Opinion's Connor Sen. Connor, some Fed speakers going so far as to give specific reasons why we'll continue to see inflation moderate. Lael Brainerd, for example, talking about lower retail margins and cooling housing. How much is the inflation threat receding? I think it's significant. We're going to see in the August inflation CPI report next week, but we've seen gas prices come off a lot, obviously. There's signs of supply chains easing all over the place. Auto production is picking up, which should help with auto pricing. But there seems to be some data suggesting that auto prices are coming down now as well. And so then it really becomes a question of your view of how inflation will stick for core services and labor. But this is a subjective view, but I just think that that's going to come down somewhat as well as the economy kind of normalizes from its pandemic state. Right. Well, we did see wage growth soften just a little bit, right? I mean, it's not like the labor market is intensely strong. Right. And at the sector level, we're seeing signs that in the industries where labor growth was the most acute last year, things like leisure and hospitality and transportation and warehousing, things like e-commerce and Amazon, that in those industries, it's coming off more than it is for the labor market as a whole, suggesting to me that that's going to sort of spread throughout the rest of the labor market as hiring catches up to demand. Yeah, so there are question marks surrounding the labour market. In one sense, it's a help to the economy. In another sense, a less strong labour market is not what we're looking for. So traders are still looking for a 75 basis point hike in September. But is a less aggressive hike warranted given all the bright spots that, you know, you and I have been pointing out and the moderating inflation in the data? It's a complicated question because I think that the Fed's main goal right now, and we sort of saw this with Fed Chair Powell's speech at Jackson Hole, is that they don't want the market to price a pivot in monetary policy and a surge back in stock markets and the housing market and so on. They think that keeping markets and the housing market kind of where they are, I would say at least a few more months, is critical for them as they assess how much progress we've made on inflation. And they can't really tell us that they're anticipating inflation to come down in the near term because, again, then we would price that. And so they have a tricky path to walk right now as they balance their goals. Yeah, and obviously we're seeing improvement in curves and so on as well, the copper curve for one example, but we do still have the 2s, 10s inverted, not the 5s, 30s. Is the yield curve signaling recession right now? I would say it's signaling that near-term inflation is going to be higher than longer-term inflation, and whether you think that means recession or that they'll sort of moderate their stance down the road as there's signs that inflation has moderated, that gets to a subjective question. I'm so optimistic, but if you're looking for a recession, I'd say the yield curve maybe is the the most smoking gun you can see in markets right now. Mm. 
I saw a mention today in a City Note, actually, the possibility of what they're calling transitory stagflation. So City talking about the potential to see elevated inflation and slower growth for just a couple of quarters, but that the result would be, and I'm quoting now, intensified stress in financial markets and increased pressures on central banks. So obviously City does have some concerns still. Would that be a scenario that you think is a possibility? That's arguably what we got in the first half of the year, where real GDP growth was negative and inflation accelerated. And so, you know, whether that continues or not, I actually think we've been making progress there over the past few months because we're seeing, again, that headline inflation is coming down, the labor market remains strong. So for workers, real incomes seem to be growing again, which was not the case in the first half of the year. And there's also hope that, say, in the labor market, where as workers get up to speed, we have all these new hires in the workplace, that they'll become more productive and that will help with this sort of stagflationary headwind we've been dealing with as well. Mm. So I guess you're very optimistic in some ways, but how much can we look at the U.S. market as a solo concern? Are you concerned at all about China and Europe slowing as it relates to feedback loops, for example? Well, I certainly am much more pessimistic on the foreign situation, where China can't seem to exit this COVID zero situation. The Europe problem is pretty well understood and discussed in terms of they're dealing with inflation, energy crises, fallen currencies, and it's it's very hard to be optimistic about Europe over the next six months. So I think the question is, what are the feedback loops into the U.S.? And for financial markets, I think they're pretty high, where we're seeing it in arguably that as interest rates rise in Europe, as they deal with inflation, that's pushing our yields higher. But the real economy pass-through is much more limited, in my opinion, and we're not really seeing that yet in the data. Yeah, and so we might skirt any problems, is what you're saying. I think right now the adjustment is really happening more for Wall Street than Main Street, and that's something that we're not used to because for so long that was not the case. And we see this in the jobs report where we added another 300,000 jobs, and we see all these problems and areas of concern in financial markets. We just haven't seen the same thing happen in the real economy. So, Connor, let me ask you then, plenty of calls for the S&P to drop as much as 16% I've seen from here. The founder of Interactive Brokers among them, but also Goldman Sachs, Michael Burry, Bank of America clients, net sellers at the moment. Are you looking for the S&P to drop? Not like that. Right now, my view is that earnings estimates have been pretty stable for the past few months. We saw a little bit of weakness in July, which was mostly due to the currency impact on big tech companies. You know, Microsoft's earning less money from Europe due to the rise in the dollar as they were previously. But outside of that, earnings estimates are pretty stable, and they're not really falling. And so if earnings don't fall, at least meaningfully, then to me, you're not going to see that kind of weakness in the stock market. You might see some weakness, as we've seen, with rising interest rates, making equities relatively less attractive. But that's not a 10 to 15% sell-off. That's just sort of stocks moving in line with the bond market. Yeah. So where is the potential for holes in your argument? Because when you lay it out, it seems plausible, very likely even. There's certainly a lot of scenarios where this could go wrong. First, energy prices could flare back up and bring back the concerns of inflation that we had in May and June. We might, we might see that productivity growth in the labor market could continue to remain weak, which might mean more labor market slowing than I'm anticipating. The Fed could just misread the economy and sort of over-tighten into a slowdown and, and sort of cause a recession before they have time to adjust. I think the pass-through is pretty limited, but if Europe and China get worse, then there could be some pass-through there. So you could point to things where this could happen, but it's just right now it's hard to see that with the state of the labor market, the state of household balance sheets, sort of where corporate America is. My view of where inflation is going over the next two or three quarters, to me, we're just going to do okay and muddle through, even though we're seeing a lot of uncertainty day to day, week to week. Connor send there. Don't forget, listeners, get in touch via Twitter at Vonnie Quinn or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. Opinions and comments always welcome. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Russia's RT broadcast operation bills itself as an English-language news channel, which brings the Russian view on global news. It's been banned in the United States and Europe, but, as Bloomberg Opinion's Clara Ferreira-Marquez points out, it's winning friends in the developing world and is functioning as an important instrument in Vladimir Putin's propaganda campaign. Clara Ferreira-Marquez joins us now. So, Clara, what is RT? Who founded it? Who runs it? So RT is Russia's 24-hour, primarily English, but not only an English news network. It was founded in 2005, really the creature of two men, Mikhail Lirsin, who was media minister, but at that time already presidential advisor, and Alexei Gromov, the former diplomat who'd run the press service. And they really understood that Russia needed a better instrument to communicate its views and to try and bring people around to the country's views. They felt really that the international traditional media was not doing a good enough job. And also the context is at the time, so 2005 is also when a lot of other non-English sort of news channels were coming out. So this is Al Jazeera in English, France 24. So it wasn't alone at that point in time. And then it really has evolved. And that's what interested us when we were looking into it is how it has changed over time. Right, because I remember that era. I remember when it started. I had colleagues interested just as they were interested in Al Jazeera. There was maybe a little bit of scepticism that there would be some pressure from the top to toe a line or what have you. But in the main, it seemed like people were actually okay with working in many of these broadcast outlets. Did something change in the mission of RT over time? What has it become? So, I mean, I think to be clear, from the beginning, it was an instrument funded by the Russian government and intended for a particular purpose. It just was perhaps doing it in a slightly different way. So at the beginning, it was more about presenting news from Russia and the former Soviet Union that you know wasn't really covered elsewhere. It was a little bit more straightforward. As it went on, things changed. And the turning points, there were few. I mean, the 2008 Georgian War was really a very significant one at that point the realisation in the Kremlin that perhaps this wasn't working as a way of getting their point across because when the Georgian war happened, if you remember, that was really about Russia having said they did not want Georgia in NATO and NATO going ahead, allowing Georgia to begin talks. And then it accelerated from then on. I mean, really, then you had the MA17, if you remember, in 2014. That was a really good example of how the channel worked in terms of, sort of counter-narratives and conspiracy theories. And then 2017, I think it's the Skripal poisoning in the UK and then obviously now the, with the war in Ukraine. But what really then changed is, is the way that it moved from being primarily worried about Western markets to a much broader view that focuses on the emerging world. Well, so it's not officially an arm of the government or anything like that. Is there any kind of an effort to suggest that it's still a free and, and fair organisation or does it always just spit out what the government press office will tell it? So, no, I mean, RT will say, and they told us, they view themselves as operationally and editorially independent. They are, however, funded by the Russian government, and they're part of a constellation of media companies that are sort of related, not all of them. The ownership structure is a little messy, but it all comes under sort of Russian government-funded organizations that are certainly intended to get the Russian view across. And they are also, I think, very interesting characters. The person who runs it, a woman called Margarita Simonian, who took over RT very early. She was only 25 when she took it on and has, with the war in Ukraine, become one of the strongest, most hawkish 
voices on Russian domestic television. So RT also has a sort of N-word function. It's so fascinating because obviously you always want a free and fair press. It is, after all, the fourth estate. But even in the freest of countries and societies, you have organisations with a bias or that are restricted in some way by their ownership or run by very hands-on owners. Maybe elucidate for us the difference between something like a Fox News or an MSNBC or Rupert Murdoch's empire in Britain and RT. I mean, let's be clear that just by virtue of what we choose to focus our energies on, in a way, is editorialising, is making decisions. But the fact is that most mainstream media make a very significant effort to balance that reporting. And that is not done at RT. And in fact, it's not done at Fox News either or indeed at the new Rupert Murdoch outlet in the UK. But I think what's really interesting is this whataboutism, which is this constant questioning, this idea that there is always a counter-narrative, that we have to constantly doubt everything to the point that everything is unknowable. And that's a really powerful propaganda tool, because if you think back to Soviet propaganda or indeed US propaganda during the Cold War, it was really about getting everyone to believe a particular narrative Mm. in the Soviet case, to try and get everyone to believe one thing. What is really powerful about Fox News, about Talk TV, about RT in particular, really, who pioneered this, is you don't have to believe what we think, you just have to believe in nothing. So if you undertook an analysis of the rhetoric and the rhetorical devices, you would actually see similar types of devices being used. So beyond that rhetorical device, are there more that you've noticed, Clara? Yeah, there's a few. There's one that's very effective. It's a mechanism that's used in advertising too. It's this conspiratorial idea. It's this idea that I as the host, I as Tucker Carlson, I as one of the hosts on RT, I speak to you directly and I say, you know, you're clever enough. You don't believe the official narrative. This conspiratorial connection works very well. And also the use of social media to both reinforce their narratives and to spread them. That is done very, very well. The use of changing audiences. If you look at trust in mainstream media, the look at the way people consume news, especially in the emerging world, much more on social media, which means that it's much easier to consume partisan news. Because if you're consuming news on social media, it's probably coming from people within your circle, people who believe the same as you. So it's not the same way as what it was like in the 70s or 80s where everyone watched the same news bulletin. So it encourages partisan politics. Well, now, so these types of organisations have always existed, but the viewer is supposed to use discretion in their viewing habits, right? It's not that these organisations shouldn't be allowed to exist, although I'm sure some people would suggest that they shouldn't be allowed to exist. How are the viewers drawn in and do we have viewership numbers for something like Orti? So, no, not really. I mean, we don't have very reliable ones. We have them fairly patchworky. It depends country by country. Um, RT tends to focus on people who are able to view the channel, which is obviously quite different from people who view the channel. I think the really important thing to understand about RT, about Fox News, about a lot of these channels, that people tend to view what they believe rather than believe what they see. You can see the difference. It's not that people watch RT and are instantly converted, mm. the same way that you and I can watch Fox News and not automatically become you know, ultra-Trump supporters. So that is true. But then when you're dealing with a changing news environment, which people are consuming much more partisan news, it becomes quite a different proposition. And I think it's important to understand that, that yes, the viewership is definitely small in Europe. But the fact is that as an instrument, once it gets into societies that are more sceptical, a priori of the traditional media, of the US, of Western intentions, you're feeding an audience that is easier to bring along. And also these are societies where media is typically ill-funded, 
is not doing its own reporting. So, for example, when I look at Sputnik and RT content that is reproduced in Southeast Asia, it's often reproduced without any sort of criticism because these organisations do not have their people on the ground in Ukraine. Clara, it's difficult to view RT through a non-Western lens because obviously we have our biases and our perceptions and so on. But how is the RT content perceived in other parts of the world? Do people accept it? Um, certainly people are a lot more sympathetic to something like RT because it isn't seen as some crazy Russian outlet. It's seen as a way of obtaining news that is reasonably okay. Mm. And that is true in Africa. It's true in Latin America. It's true in the Middle East. It's true here in Asia, certainly in Southeast Asia. Particularly, for example, in Southeast Asia, where Russia is perceived as a Islamic-friendly country as opposed to the West, these narratives they carry a lot of weight. And the way that RT has worked, and Latin America is a good example, they really have played to their strength, uh, speaking to particular audiences, looking at particular countries where they are more accepted. So, for example, Argentina, Mexico, Venezuela. It's been very, very effective. You have some fantastic examples of the types of slogans that are associated with RT in your story. One is question more. You also mentioned that... One of RT's favourite talking points is there are no good guys and no bad guys, which is eerily similar to something we heard here in the United States back a few years, which I won't repeat. How did and how does RT deal with international news? So, for example, the Gilets Jaunes protests in France or the Black Lives Matter demonstrations here? It tends to view, and this is true, by the way, of RT in different languages. It tends to be the content is different. It is produced differently. It has a slightly different focus. But the way they deal with it is reasonably similar. So there are sort of three types of news on RT. One is the sensational, and this is particularly true on social media. So they use a lot of sensational content. It could be violence in the US. It could be volcanoes. It could be sort of viral type content. That's one. The second is um, uh, US content and content from Western countries that shows dysfunction and shows that these systems don't work and shows that multicultural systems have problems. Um, serious ones at that. So Black Lives Matter, Occupy, Wall Street, uh, the Gilets Jaunes in France, these were absolutely brilliant for them. In fact, they did such good work that they were nominated for an Emmy. So um, these are are very important. Yes, these are narratives that really fit with their view. I mean, one really good example was the January 6th, where RT actually didn't have to do anything. They just played the images. And it really just said, this is it. Look at the chaos that is in the Western world, the loss of conservative values, it's violent. They just needed to show the image, and they do that quite a lot. And I think the third bucket is international news viewed through their lens and Russian news, but that really tends to be in the minority. You have to wonder how much staffers know or how staffers feel about working at places like that. Are they completely on board with everything? Do they have to sign non-disclosure agreements, for example? They do have to sign non-disclosure agreements. There is a difference, I think, between the people who worked for Ati Elion and then as it continued and it became more apparent as the channel itself changed. But I think it's important to understand the people that Ati targeted. Um, they generally hired young people, people who were desperate to make it in the media. TV is an absolutely cutthroat world. It's not hard to understand why a very generous offers that Ati made, particularly in the early years, were very appealing. I mean, a lot of people also left to be clear in February, including some of their strongest voices. But uh, yeah, people make complicated compromises. I think there's a lot of people told me, no, 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 we're, we're independent. You know, we work in IT, but we're able, especially if we're still employed, would say, no, we're still able to do the same reporting that anyone else does, which I find a little bit difficult to believe just in terms of editorial priorities. 
You make the point in the story that Vladimir Putin is going to use RT in order to get through the sanctions and the impact of the sanctions on the Russian economy. Explain what you mean by that theory. I think it's there's a wider strategy the Russian government has that, you know, as it is increasingly isolated from the West, it needs to find alternative markets, it needs to find alternative political partners, uh, people that it can do business with, also people who can stand by it in Security Council votes at the United Nations and at the G20. And so that's where the emerging world is so important, and in particular, non-aligned nations. So obviously, you have those countries like Eritrea or Uganda that, you know, will fall behind Russia. But more important for Russia are those who purport not to take a side. So uh, China, Brazil, Indonesia, India, uh, these are really important countries for Russia, in fact, the bulk of Latin America, the bulk of Africa, that Russia needs to keep on side. And if you look at the countries who have imposed sanctions, I mean, a large proportion of the G20 have not. Yeah, that's that's for sure. And, and um, we'll see in November what happens in Indonesia. Tie this all together for us. What else is available to people, given that Vladimir Putin cracked down on media and so many of the international journalists that were based in Russia had to leave? I think it's important to distinguish what the audiences that RT has, which are primarily international. There is RT in Russian, but it isn't really used domestically. It is primarily other intentions. It does have echoes internally. So, for example, RT Twitter content or RT's editor-in-chief, Margarita Simonian, can be used for domestic propaganda purposes, and they are. She is very, very prominent, hawkish voice on Russian television. But Russian propaganda on Russian TV for domestic consumption is just much more sort of out there, much more naked in its narrative and the sort of more outrageous things that are possible for Russian TV presenters, which RT is a little bit more international in this approach. Bloomberg Opinions, Clara Ferreira Marquez. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You all know Shuli Ren. She covers Asian markets and regularly discusses China's economy and markets with us. Well, she finally got to travel around Southeast Asia again recently after a long hiatus. A trip to Vietnam produced some fascinating insights about what two communist countries can learn from each other. So, Shuli, China is slowing. The question we don't know yet is by how much. Vietnam, by contrast, is growing quite healthily. Both communist countries, though obviously not carbon copies in terms of their ideologies, and obviously there's huge differences we know in terms of GDP per capita, population size and so on. But in terms of governance, at least, Shuli, tell us what Vietnam is doing differently to China that's benefiting its economic prospects. I think the biggest difference with Vietnam so far is that Vietnam seems able to self-correct from its past mistakes. Believe it or not, Ho Chi Minh City, basically the commercial hub of Vietnam, they also had a really harsh lockdown for four months last June all the way to September, and the military was out amidst reports of food shortages and untreated medical illnesses. 
And what happened before that was that Hanoi was also like China. They had a lot of national pride. They wanted to build their own vaccine. But because of the Ho Chi Minh City lockdown, they decided that their vaccine was just not working. And they started taking vaccines from everyone, from AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna, even from China's uh, Sinopharm. Basically, whoever, whichever country that was willing to donate the vaccine through the diplomacy channels of the WHO's COVAX programs, they will take it. They even asked Samsung Electronics to somehow source vaccines for them worldwide. As a result, Vietnam's economy, they are fully reopened. These days, if you want to go into Vietnam, you don't have to show your vaccine record or have a negative PCR test. You can just go because they feel like they're pretty confident that the whole population is vaccinated and they have pretty effective vaccine in the population. So they feel pretty good about that. Whereas in China these days, coming from Hong Kong, we have more flights to Ho Chi Minh City than to Shanghai. In the month of August, there are only two flights operated by Cafe Pacific from Hong Kong to Shanghai. That's just ridiculous. Hmm. Well, and as a result of all this, Vietnam is actually looking towards 7% growth this year. We know that China's 5.5% target is, as you actually put it on this show, fantasy at this point. But the other difference is that Vietnam went all in on stimulus. So $15 billion worth of fiscal stimulus and an easy monetary policy in a world where central banks are really turning hawkish, particularly the Fed. How is this working out for Vietnam? So for Vietnam, I don't think it's working out very well. On the ground, one complaint you hear from investors and the Vietnamese themselves is that even though the government has pledged a lot of stimulus, like infrastructure building, you just don't hear construction sound very much. Like infrastructure has halted, and that's actually stopping Vietnam from growing faster. I mean, Vietnam right now is targeting 7%, which is quite good by global standards, but it's nothing compared to say, two decades ago, when China was growing at over 10% during China's export boom. So I think Vietnam can do better on infrastructure spending. Still a pretty phenomenal figure, though, for a country just out of COVID. What are companies doing? Are they looking to Vietnam as a potential base, as opposed to China, or maybe even in addition to China? So I think at this point, the companies are only talking about China plus one. So a lot of companies like Apple's supply chain, they are looking at bidding for industrial land in the northern part of Vietnam, like near Hanoi, in part because it's closer to China. Perhaps, you know, supply chain is just a little bit better. And in part because multinationals do want to diversify out of China. But one thing that I have to say, though, is that, you know, like for the modern electronic supply chain, the supply chain is very, very long. You, you have to have have everything, basic materials, chemicals, acid, or even construction materials. And the Vietnam doesn't seem to have that. And when you talk to people on the ground, they were saying, yeah, I would like to open factories, but I cannot even find aluminum window sills. Mm-hmm. I still have to somehow import it from China. So you do you do hear that's one bottleneck, that the economy itself doesn't produce basic industrials. And another thing is uh, infrastructure. They just feel like, oh, the roads are very, very slow. The government can be building faster highways. You know, Ho Chi Minh City doesn't even have subway right now. This one big highway called the North-South Expressway, it's pretty much stopped. If you want to do like express package from Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh City, it can take four days. Whereas in China, even today, it will be pretty fast within a day. Who or what policy is to blame for that, Shuli? Because you would imagine it would be pretty easy and even cost efficient to get flights in the air. Also to have ports built up and down the vast coastline. Is that not happening? 
So Vietnam is also doing anti-corruption campaign, just like China. The general secretary, he started his uh, unprecedented uh, third term last year. And he, he's worried, you know, with all this one-party rule, they, they want to ensure the legitimacy of um, the Communist Party. And he, he has been cracking down on anti-corruption. And then, like, all the officials, they're just very scared. They, 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 they just they're not even proof, uh, like, infrastructure projects because construction costs has come up. We all know, right, globally. Mm. Material costs has come up. What used to cost $100 million will cost, like, say, $150 million. And if you approve it, the government can suddenly say, why are you approving it? Are you oh. <laughs> trying to help your friends and family? So, like, that's the problem, like, anti-corruption campaign has slowed down bureaucracy in Vietnam. So it'll be some time before we see the infrastructure build out that we saw in China and that could make a massive difference. Well, so the other question is how it's been holding up in terms of foreign reserves, which seems to be pretty well. And we know in many emerging countries right now, the problem is foreign reserves. Currencies have been weakening as the dollar has been strengthening and some frontier markets are having to beg the IMF for loans and meet all sorts of requirements and so on. But in Vietnam, they're near a record, something like $110 billion right now. And yeah, the Vietnamese dong has been depreciating, but the central bank has been able to keep money markets stable by selling foreign currency. Does that continue? So I think the Vietnamese government is very nervous about the dong and then about any talk of its weakening FX reserves because there is a lot of water component in it. What happens is that, say, like if you look at Vietnam, it's actually dipping into a current account deficit now because the global economy is slowing pretty fast, right? So what, what's happening right now is like, say, at the beginning of the year, February, March, the outlook was rosier. So the likes of Samsung, I don't know, Foxconn, they, they have imported a lot of electronic components into Vietnam. So there was a big boost in imports. And now suddenly they are stepping back on the end production and demand. So they're not exporting as much. As a result, Vietnam is actually falling into a, a trade deficit instead of uh, what we imagine would be a surplus. So the government is very nervous. And the Vietnamese, they don't like it when the dong depreciates too fast. It is a problem that Hanoi is facing right now. Surely, more generally, can other countries, not just Vietnam, not just even Southeast East Asian countries, but can other countries copy in some ways what Vietnam is doing and take away China's manufacturing shine? I think the other countries, they have to be very brave because what China has done is that it has built up tremendous infrastructure network and the supply chain network through debt. I mean, we all know China is one of the world's most indebted countries. So for you to take away China's manufacturing power, you not only have to have broad, well-connected infrastructure network, as well as a big industrial base. So basically, you have to be willing to take on that, like 100% of your GDP. So unless countries are willing to do that, I think it will be kind of difficult. Inflation, it's not as much of a problem in Vietnam as it is in many countries, obviously. But certainly it is a little bit more of a problem than it is in China at the moment. We're looking at close to 4% for Vietnam. Are authorities keeping a close eye? Yes. And then, I mean, China's inflation could have been a lot worse. Right now, the end demand is not so good. So like if the Chinese economy goes back to normal, like the inflation will be a lot higher. And the government is quite nervous about that because China overall inflation has been pretty stable for like uh, 20, 30 years or so. But uh, here and there, you, you see a little bit of spike in the pork prices, vegetables, fruit. And also, we can go back to 1989. What happened during 1989? That was when China had a really high inflation and pretty low employment outlook. 
And so government well, exactly. We got a warning from President Xi Jinping on inflation, which was actually yeah. quite a surprise. But at the same time, we're seeing the central bank engage in a little bit of monetary easing. There's the same conundrum going on for China as there is for the United States, growth versus inflation, right? Absolutely. And then like at this point, it just does seem that the COVID zero policy is going to stay in China. The people who are basically executing COVID zero, they are getting promoted. So basically all other bureaucracies will have to somehow accommodate to prop up that COVID zero thing. And that's why the PBOC is eating a little bit. It's like a stimulus light, I guess. Stimulus light, I love that. Well, except for Hong Kong, though, surely, no? The city isn't exactly adhering to COVID zero in the same way that mainland China is. We also like to say we adhere to COVID zero, but we we have a little bit leeway. So we also have COVID zero light. (laughs) Hong Kong is trying to open up because it's not working. The economy really is not working. So right now we have three days of hotel quarantine plus four more days of home quarantine. We, we are trying to do a little bit better. Bloomberg Opinion's Shuli Ren. Don't forget, listeners, get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Vonnie Quinn or email vquinn at bloomberg.net. Opinions and comments always welcome. And we're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or your favourite podcast platform. That does it for this week. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.